Little Bo Peep. Yeah. Little Bo Peep. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Little Bo Hi, everyone. I'm Jacqueline Toberoff. And I'm Tamara Lashtak. And we are your hosts of the Bo Peep podcast. Where the men are women, the women are men, and the sheep are confused. Okay. Hello, everyone. I wanted to introduce a guest that we have who is joining us from Israel, who is going to give us her perspective on what life is like since the conflict began. So with that, let me introduce Rachel. Rachel, can you tell me and our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Rachel President Schrader. I am actually a triple Israeli-American-Canadian citizen. I grew up in the U.S. in Rochester, New York, uh, and was very involved in the Jewish community there. I went to Brandeis, where I did a degree in philosophy and politics, then spent a year in Israel volunteering in different places, including a pediatric oncology ward in Haifa. Then I went back to the U.S. for two years and worked for a member of Congress, and then as a lobbyist for the Jewish Federation system. And then when I was 25, I made Aliyah and moved to Israel. And I have been here ever since. So it's been almost 12 years. When I moved to Israel, I did first a master's degree in government with a specialization in counterterrorism and homeland security. And then have since moved into a career that has nothing to do with anything that I studied, which is that I am in marketing for a very large corporation. Today, I live with my husband and our two kids who are six and four, just outside of Tel Aviv. Okay. How has your life been since this conflict has begun? I think the conflict began way before I was in Israel, way before I was born, way before you were born, any event. The conflict goes back a long way. Of but, course. But you mean the latest yes. conflagration? Absolutely. Sure. For me as a mother, this was the first time that I had a child who was old enough to understand what was happening and to understand that the booms that he heard were people firing rockets that were aimed at him. And many Israelis have bomb shelters in their apartments. We don't. We have one in the basement of our apartment building. So anytime a siren went off, we had to pick up our kids, who were usually asleep because it was often in the middle of the night, and take them down two flights of stairs into this cement fluorescent light bomb shelter. I remember the first time that it happened, my child was on my husband's lap, and he looked at me and he said, I'm scared, mommy. I'm really scared. And it just broke my heart into a million pieces because children shouldn't have to be scared. Right. And the reality of this conflict was that my child was scared and we were the lucky ones. We had a bomb shelter. I couldn't stop thinking about the mothers of Gaza. I don't like to call it the other side of the conflict because I don't think there are sides. I think that by and large, we're talking about millions of people who just want to live, who just want to not worry about bombs coming at their heads. Yes. And the mothers of Gaza didn't have a bomb shelter to run to, by and large. And we can talk about the reasons for that. But the bottom line is that they didn't have the option of a bomb shelter. So it wasn't great to have a bomb shelter. It was quite awful to have a bomb shelter and to sort of hear phantom sirens during the day. Still now, when we hear a noise, my kids say, is that a siren? 
but it's much better than not having one. So let's talk about Gaza specifically. Let's take off on what you just said. Your mother's there not having a bomb shelter and why that is. Why don't you elaborate on that and give us some of your thoughts? I think that there are three things to consider when you're talking about this conflict and when you're talking about the latest round. And I would say those are the actors, the impact, and the intended impact. The way that you frame who's in the conflict determines a lot about how you view the actions taken during the conflict. If you frame Israel as the Jewish homeland, which I believe that it is, I'm a Zionist. If you believe that the Jewish state has a right to exist, if you believe that the Israeli army is doing self-defense, that's very different than if you view Israel as a colonizing state, than if you view Israel as an apartheid state, which I lived in South Africa for four months. I just, I lived in a township in South Africa. I know that to be incorrect. Those are two very different stories. And the same is true about Hamas. Somehow in the international media, they've come to be seen as a neutral player or like a warm, cuddly teddy bear trying to protect the people of Gaza. And I don't believe that to be the case. I think that the number one enemy of the people of Gaza is Hamas. Whether you view them as this organization providing welfare to citizens of Gaza, which they are, there's nobody else doing it, or you view them as the reason that Gaza is in the situation that it is, and take them at face value with what they say in their charter, which is that their goal is to eliminate Israel, that leads you to two very different sort of sets of conclusion. If you look at the actions, the impact, the impact is one Israeli child died. Dozens of Palestinian children were killed in Gaza. Why was that the case? You can look at just the impact and say that the fact that dozens of Palestinian children were killed was a tragedy. There's no getting around that. These children are dead and they're never going to come back. I think that as Israelis and as a Jew and as someone who believes deeply in this state, I have to sit with that. Dozens of children were killed by my army. There's nothing about that that's okay. When I look a level deeper beyond that, why did those children die? Those children died because Hamas made a choice not to establish a network of bomb shelters. Every building built in Israel has had to have a bomb shelter. For the last, I think, three decades, they have to be in all apartments that are built. That means that when the bombs were falling, when the rockets were coming at us, I didn't really worry about getting hit by a rocket. I worried about my children's fear. I worried about my children's trauma, but I didn't really have to worry about the rocket because of the bomb shelter. We had a government that I disagree with tremendously, but that has over the decades made it a priority to take care of its citizens. And the people of Gaza are left with a government that has basically used their children as tools to generate this sort of media coverage that more children are dying in Gaza as if that works in their favor, as if that's not an abject tragedy, as if every one of those children shouldn't have died. The rules of international conflict, the rules of war, which exist, which are codified, say that when you're in a war situation, which this most certainly was, there are rules for each side. For instance, fighters have to be uniformed so that you know who's a fighter and who's a civilian. 
and they need to have clear bases from which they operate, and they need to have public figures. I can't remember all of the parameters, but the Israeli army tries to play within the rules of war, and Hamas doesn't. When they fire rockets at Israel, they're not aiming at military bases. They're aiming at civilians. Mm-hmm. And when Israel fires back, they're aiming at military locations. They're aiming at Hamas headquarters. The head of UNRWA in Gaza just said to the media that the Israeli operation was very sophisticated, that they tried to avoid civilian casualties. And mm-hmm. Hamas has now forced him to recant and banished him from Gaza. It's hard when you're talking about this almost like a moral equivalence between the two sides when the impact of this horror of these children dying in Gaza and the horror of this child who died in Israel. And it's very easy to look at the numbers and say dozens of children on one side and one child on the other. And the reality is that you have one government that has taken action to protect its citizens and made sure that they have the means to protect themselves and another that has done just the opposite that views casualties as a PR stunt. I think that puts you in a complicated position. So I would say, who are the actors and why are they doing what they're doing? Why is Hamas doing what they're doing, both Mm -hmm. to their own people and to Israel? Why is Israel doing what it's doing? I don't think Israel gets off scot-free on this last round. I think Bibi fanned the flames. I think he incited violence. I think he acted in a way that was morally reprehensible. I don't buy into the sort of narrative that Israel has totally clean hands. I don't think that everything that we did was okay. I know that we cross lines all the time. I do think that you're talking about two very different types of actors when Mm -hmm. you're talking about one that goes to great lengths to avoid civilian casualties, both on their side and on the other side, and one that views those casualties as a bonus. It's hard to add those things up. Would you agree with the following statement? If Israel was asked to put down its weapons, there would be genocide. If Hamas or Palestinians were asked to put down their weapons, there would be peace. I think that's a hard question. Having been raised in like a very liberal Zionist home, my gut is to say yes, of course. But I think it's more complex than that in the sense that Israel has a more established place in the world. We know that we do business even with countries we don't have peaceful. We know that Israelis are everywhere. I think if Israel were to lay down its weapons, there would be a lot of problems. I'm not sure that if Hamas laid down their weapons, there would necessarily be peace. And more than that, I'm I'm not sure whether there would be justice. There have been a huge number of wrongs committed on both sides. I don't love comparisons to South Africa because I mostly think they're Mm -hmm. not accurate, but I did quite a bit of work uh, as an undergraduate on a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that took place in South Africa after the end of apartheid. One important stage of that was acknowledging the wrongs that had been done on both sides and really at a human level feeling those things. It can be that horrible things have happened to two different groups of people. It doesn't have to be that there is a winner and a loser. I want nothing more than to cry with the mothers of Gaza for what has happened to them because they don't deserve it. They are essentially being held hostage by their government, which should be acting in their interests and isn't. 
You mentioned earlier that people are starting to look at Hamas in the media as like this big cuddly teddy bear. Where is this coming from? We see this too in the US and it's shocking. We've seen the rise of anti-Semitism in the cities across America and across every major city in the world. All of a sudden, this endearment for Hamas, I, I just don't understand. Where did this come from? What are your views on that? I'm sorry to answer every question you're asking with, I think it's complicated, but I think it every is all, none of this, this is simple. It's all complicated. Right. The only thing that I know for sure is that none of this is simple. I volunteered in Rambam Hospital in the pediatric oncology ward in the year that I was here after I finished college. I was quite right wing on Israeli politics at the time and had never gotten to know any Palestinians. And when I got to the hospital, there were some Jewish girls who were doing their year of service and they basically refused to interact with the Palestinian children in the pediatric oncology ward who made up about half the patients. So somehow I, this secular right-wing American who was living in Israel, became the person who played with the Palestinian children all the time. And I fell in love with a little boy called Jalal. He was from Janine, which at the time had recently had well-known airstrikes. For me, getting to know him and his family well enough that when he had a bone marrow transplant, the people allowed in the room after were his mother, his medical staff, and me totally changed my perception of things. So I think perception up close and perception from a distance are vastly different. Jalal changed my life. Before that, I didn't understand that the Palestinians were just like I was. His family just wanted their kids to be healthy. He told me that because a lot of children received treatment in Haifa when they had cancer, that there was now starting to be a real reduction in the anti-Israel sentiment in the area because they started to view each other as human. If people started ragging on the Israelis, Jalal's family would say, they're treating our child. They're saving his life. Don't say that about them. Getting to know people up close changed their perspective. And knowing people from afar, I think, sharpens mm -hmm. your views. I think that it's very easy to see what's happening in Gaza and say, it's all because of the Israelis. It's all because of the way that Israel is acting. It's much harder to take a real critical look and say, Hamas is doing tremendously wrong by their people. At the end of the day, Hamas isn't bombing their people. Right? They're much more conniving than that. It's almost like a Stockholm syndrome mm -hmm. where you have the victims connecting to the person who's victimizing them. Why is there a blockade of Gaza? Because Hamas keeps taking materials and taking resources and taking everything that they can get their hands on and using it for ill, not for good. But you can also look at that and say, Israel has this blockade and it's so terrible. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to disconnect it entirely from anti-Semitism. I'm reading all the time now and I'm seeing all the time on social media. Anytime there's a threat about anything Jewish, it turns into Palestine. I don't know that it really is possible to disconnect anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a really old hatred. It goes mm -hmm. back many centuries. Mm -hmm. I experienced it myself. I think it's hard to get away from the fact that some of this stems from anti-Semitism that has reared its ugly head literally before all the Holocaust survivors were dead. Do you think part of the rise of anti-Semitism is also anti-Americanism and this 
hatred for America and the one democracy that stands between the Middle East and some of these extremist organizations that want to bring down America feel that Israel needs to come down first? I don't think so, because I see a lot of it also within the U.S. and particularly within the left and right wings, both of American politics. I think that there's a certain amount of historical revisionism happening. I was very close to my husband's grandfather who died a number of years ago. He grew up in Hungary and he was captured in 1944, was sent to Auschwitz, survived unthinkable horrors, lost all of his siblings except for one or two sisters, lost both of his parents. I believe he had two sisters, one of whom was so traumatized she never had children. He lived through unspeakable horrors. He only survived Auschwitz because he saw, right as it was liberated, two women that he knew from his village. A horrible story. He was an amazing human. After the war, he went back to his village, to the home that he had grown up in, and was chased away by people with knives and told that if he came back, he would never leave again. That's a horror of a story. And it's been repeated hundreds of thousands of times, not just in Hungary, but all over the Middle East to Iraqi Jews and to Yemenite Jews and to Tunisian Jews and to Persian Jews. It also happened in Israel to the Palestinians. None of that is fair. It's not fair to be chased out of your home. It's also the way that the world works. It's not fair and it's not right. Two wrongs don't make a right. But I don't know where the Jews are supposed to go. If we're not supposed to be in Israel and we're being screamed out of L.A. and out of New York and out of London and out of Toronto, where are we supposed to go? The only answer to that is that you don't want Jews around. Be honest about that. If you don't think the Jews have a right to be anywhere, they don't have a right to be in the state. They don't have a right to be in Canada. They don't have a right to be in the U.K. They don't have a right to be in France. They don't have a right to be in Australia and they don't have a right to be in Israel then you just don't think the Jews have a right to exist. Don't cloak that in, I'm just criticizing the Israeli government. Going back to what you just said in terms of nobody should be chased out of their home, but that is the reality of the world. If you know anything about history, you will know that that's the reality of the world. So what are your thoughts on the entire conflict? Not the recent one, but I think you mentioned that you have some views what would you like to see as a solution to this? I believe pretty firmly in the concept of two states. You do? I think that the, I do. I think that the Palestinians deserve a state. I think that they need a state the same way that we needed a state. I would like to believe that we can live in peace. But if we can't live in peace, I would at least like to believe that we're not continuing to oppress a people for decades. There are unconscionable things happening in my country, in my name, all the time. There are Israelis who are using Palestinian land for agriculture. There are expansions of settlements into land that is not ours. There children are going from my city in central Israel at age 18 into the army to protect illegal outposts. I think that it's corrupting us as Israel from the inside. I think that it's not right. I would really love to see a two-state solution. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the, where the borders are. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a huge lack of leadership within the Palestinian people. All of these comparisons 
to apartheid make me think of Madiba, of Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. And anyone who tells you that was not a violent conflict is way off. You had a leader who tried to rebuild. I think the Palestinians need leadership that is vested in their future, that believes that the Palestinians have a right to a thriving economy, to a thriving future, to jobs that will pay well and schools that will teach well and that will enable them to thrive. When I was 30, I moved out of nonprofit fundraising and into high tech because the Israeli economy and the Israeli high tech scene was booming. There's no reason that the Palestinian high tech scene shouldn't also be booming. I would love to take a Palestinian intern onto my team. I would love to hire Palestinians. I would love for us to live side by side with our neighbors. For them and for us, I think that would be the best thing. How you get from here to there is a really hard question. I don't know that it doesn't begin with the mothers, that we don't sit together and and talk about it. Because I really believe that the mothers of Gaza want the same things that I want. What steps would their government have to take in order to move this ahead? To your point, I think that they do a huge disservice and they're not doing well by their people. What are some fundamental steps do you think that they would have to do? I don't even see any operation in good faith. I think it's a real problem. The steps that I would like to see would be switching out the Hamas charter to stop calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. They can continue to want that on an ideological level. I get it. I think diversity is our strength. My first son was delivered by an Arab doctor because it was Rosh Hashanah and all the Jewish doctors were off. The first step I would say is for Hamas to pragmatically acknowledge that they're not going to destroy Israel, period. Then the goal becomes, how can they create the best life for their citizens? The goal of their organization should be to live in peace alongside their neighbors, to create a thriving society that works for people, to renounce terrorism, to say, we want to work together. We want to make this work for all of us. I might be Pollyanna to believe that can happen. How do you tell a terrorist organization that they need to start operating from a place of love? and peace. I don't know the inside workings of Hamas. The best of my understanding is that you have the military division and the rest of the organization. I think probably step one would be to get rid of the military branch and negotiate with them to declare a state of Palestine that would have an army that would work as every other army does meaning would be held to the same standards of international law, would be required to have soldiers, to have actual military training, to have the goal ideally be peacekeeping, to have them sign off on borders. These are the borders that we all agree to and have leadership at the top of the Palestinians that says, that's it. These are the borders. Put down your guns. We're done. Tel Aviv is staying this lovely, diverse city that it is, where you have Yafo, which has a wonderful Arab community, and Haifa is staying the diverse city that it is, and all of the places where we've seen intergroup tensions in the last few weeks are staying what they are, which is to say mixed cities. 
we are going to live alongside each other. We are done fighting. Do I know if it's possible? No, but I would rather die thinking that it is than go down thinking that it's not. While it sounds wonderful and idealistic, from an organization that doesn't even value the life of its own people and its own children in particular, they're terrorists. They're not really an organized government that really wants peace. They want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. That's one of their primary goals. The other alternative is that you have some sort of deeply charismatic leader that emerges out of Gaza, who is nonviolent, who really wants to build a future, and where Hamas becomes less relevant over time. I think that's probably the ideal. Mm -hmm. I think the alternative is unpalatable. What I'm saying might be Pollyanna, but what's the alternative? If you had looked at us in 2019 and said, there's going to be a global pandemic and the world's going to shut down for a year, everybody would have said, no way, you must be kidding. It's not going to happen. And it did. Everybody says there's no way that Hamas puts down their weapons and agrees to live beside Israel and peace to terrorists. And they are. But maybe it changes. I was as right wing as they get in college. And here I am talking about the mothers of Gaza. People change. Opinions change. Sure. And things change. The alternative is what? Eternal conflict? That my boys go off to the army in just over a decade yeah. and fight this battle that's been going on for God knows how long? I have to believe that as impossible as it feels, peace is more possible than endless conflict because endless conflict benefits no one. You were talking about how your son was delivered by a doctor who was an Arab we're seeing that Israel is actually allowing Arabs into their government. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see any potential danger with that? I would not say that Israel is allowing Arabs into the government. I would say Arab Israeli citizens of Israel are now part of the governing coalition. I think that's an important distinction because they are a part of this country. They're not outsiders. I think that societies are in large me measure to be evaluated based on how they treat the vulnerable, based on how they treat minorities. Israel as a Jewish democracy, with equal weight between those two things, Jewish and democracy, needs to treat our Arab citizens better. I am delighted that Ra'am is sitting in the new coalition. I think it's tremendous. I think it provides a great opportunity for us to really live up to what we can be, a pluralist nation that provides opportunities for all of its citizens. I was looking at what they negotiated for in the coalition deal. They wanted the revocation of a law that makes it harder for them to build. Count me in. It should be just as impossible for them to build as it is for Jewish citizens to build. Everybody should have access to poorly built apartments. I think that we haven't been fair to the 20-25% of citizens in this country who are Arabs. I hope that this will be the dawn of a new age where Arab Israelis are getting the resources that they have coming to them, are treated properly, are given equal opportunities, not just on the books, but in real life, where we can move forward as a society showing the world how you treat the minorities who are in your midst. Right now, we're not doing that properly.
I hope that this will be the dawn of a new age. Let me ask you about the sentiment of BB. Do you think in many ways it's similar to the sentiment that people felt in the U.S. and around the world about Donald Trump? I think in some ways it is. I think BB made a mistake that will go down as critical to Israel's history, which is that Israel was a bipartisan issue. It had bipartisan support in the U.S. government. It was a fight to see who loved Israel the most. When he chose to come and speak before Congress without speaking to President Obama, without having been invited by President Obama, he politicized an issue. He politicized his country. He made it so that Israel is a partisan issue where you have one party in favor and the other party trying to divide because they are rightfully really angry at the snub that he made of the sitting American president. I worked in government. I can tell you, every lobbyist, all they want is for their issue to have bipartisan support. All they want is to have 435 to zero vote, 100 to zero vote. And that used to be the vote on Israel. And Bibi decided that his ego was too important and he put himself ahead of the needs of his country and he made Israel a partisan issue. Now, Democrats like the squad can point to that and say, look what he did. They're not wrong. I think that will go down in the history books as a huge mistake. Why do you think he did that? And do you think that that was in response to a trend that was already emerging? There were lots of reports that Hillary Clinton had snubbed Israel on several accounts. This has been trending already in the Democrat Party. Is it Was it Bibi just saying enough is enough? Or what do you think he did that? Hillary Clinton has for decades been an exceedingly loyal friend to Israel. She's been here more times than I can count. The same is true of President Biden. There's no better supporter of Israel. I think there's a question within the Israeli-American relationship, which says, what is a friend? What does it mean to be a friend of Israel? Does it mean you just back every Israeli government? Or does it mean you take a longer-term strategic interest in the country? Meaning, I would argue that President Obama was a better friend of Israel than President Trump because he forced us to try and find a way forward. So he wasn't going to just rubber stamp everything that we did. The parallel that I've drawn the most often is to a woman in an abusive relationship. Is her best friend the one who says, oh, it's okay, just stay with him, it's all right? Or is it the one who says, no, you have to get out, you can do better than this? I feel like President Trump was the one who said, oh, it's okay, you can do whatever you want, expand your settlements, just keep building, we'll move our embassy to Jerusalem. Who cares? I'm just going to rubber stamp everything that Israel wants and go to the extreme right, and it's totally fine. President Obama really took a look at this country and said, what does Israel need to be able to move forward as a Jewish democracy? And he's the one who provided funding for the Iron Dome, which probably has saved my children's lives and millions of Israeli citizens. Mm -hmm. He took a critical look at Israel and said, here are the steps that you need to take to try and move forward, to try and live in peace with your neighbors. 
And so I would say that the best friend Israel could have is not one that kind of rubber stamps us, but one that helps us to move toward the vision that I have mm -hmm. for what we can be. What's your view on the Iran deal and Biden wanting to renegotiate it, which is providing funding to Hamas? Basically, $30 million of financing a month goes to Hamas from Iran. That is true. I think I don't know enough to comment. I believe that President Biden wouldn't make a move that he felt was dangerous for Israel. I don't know the deals well enough to be able to, to tell you what the logic is. Okay. That's a fair point. How would you like the U.S. to respond to the current conflict, if at all? I think there needs to be a two-pronged response, the first of which is regarding the anti-Semitism that's happening in the United States and around the world, which is a clear condemnation of what's happening. It's a very disturbing trend. The U.S. won't stand for it. American Jews make up, I don't know, a huge percentage of the Biden administration's senior officials are valued American citizens, period. That's the first prong, I would say. The second one is that the United States has a vested interest in a strong Israel, in an Israel that can live in peace, that the U.S. also believes in the right of Palestinians to self-determination, and that they will work towards a two-state solution, which will enable all of the people of this region to live happy, productive lives in peace. I think that the Palestinians in Gaza have been so wronged. I think that a lot of discussions like this one can forget that because Hamas is so awful. The people of Gaza get thrown under the bus. I was reading about how there are fewer Gazans who are being brought to Israeli hospitals for treatment. That just breaks my heart because shouldn't Gaza be building hospitals? Why isn't Hamas building hospitals and training doctors? Why isn't that happening and why aren't we talking about it? Where are the universities? Where are the judo classes? Where are the basketball classes and the ballet classes? Where are the efforts to... Yeah. Build a society full of people who can earn money and pay taxes and build a successful, thriving economy that works for its citizens. I think you're giving them too much credit. I could hear the goodness in your voice and in your heart, but some are beyond saving. And I view Hamas as a terrorist organization, not with any real redeemable qualities. Now, separating Hamas from Palestinians and Arabs and noting the distinction to your story earlier about Jamal. While a touching story, Jamal was not Hamas. Absolutely. I don't think I'm disagreeing with you there. Hamas 100% is a terrorist organization. What I'm saying is that they're not serving their people either. They're terrorists against Israel, but they're also terrorizing the Palestinian people. Yeah, well, a terrorist is a terrorist. They have yeah. a complete and total disregard for human life. It doesn't matter if it's human life of the people around them. We've seen this throughout history. We've seen this with Stalin. We've seen this with the Chinese Communist Party. They don't care how many of their own people die. It's to achieve whatever their nefarious goal is and to survive. I think that we as Americans, though, need to be clear that the Palestinians deserve better. 
that the Palestinians deserve to be governed by people who have their interests at heart, who want them to be able to live good lives, who want to build all the things that our society has. The day after the ceasefire, I was with my kids in our local pool, which reopened. I was thinking to myself, we pay for the pool, but it's a great thing that we have. And my kids were able to go and get out some of the energy from the previous two weeks of conflict and lots of other families were there also. I was thinking to myself, where are the people who would build pools for the children of Gaza? Where are the people who are going to fight for the children of Gaza and not for them to die and not for them to be tools used by Trevor Noah and John Oliver? Where are the people who are going to build bomb shelters because those children should never be in open air when there's a conflict? Where are they? The Palestinians deserve better. I would agree with you on that, for sure. I do have one more quick question, only because you brought it up. I wanted that to be their last question, but I just wanted to know your thoughts on the squad in particular, because you mentioned it. Do you worry that the squad is going to grow in terms of its beliefs within the Democrat Party? One of the things that I love about being a Democrat is how much of an open tent we have. The way that we're able to bring people in from all different walks of life. I would love for the squad to be a part of the Democratic Party in the way that I love it. I am deeply disturbed by some of what I've seen from different members of the squad. Probably Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib in particular. It's really those two that are the most anti-Israel. Yes, absolutely. I think it's great to have a Palestinian voice in the American government, to be honest. I would love to see her view the conflict in a similar way that I do, which is to really want to push for like a peaceful two-state solution. I think that it would benefit her family as much as it would benefit mine. I would welcome the opportunity to dialogue with her and share with her. It's clear to me that she's coming from a place of great pain. I think that great pain can cloud a lot Mm -hmm. of judgment. I respect her pain. I don't know her story. I can't speak to her story. But I think that her pain is real. I think that pain influences the way that you shape and see the world. I think that negotiating with anyone on this conflict has to start with a real and true acknowledgement of pain on both sides. I worry that right now, fundamentalists on both sides, and I would say the squad is the left wing. I would say that it's true of the right wing that Not so many people are willing to do that, to really look at both sides and say they're suffering and to say there's no clear right and wrong here. It's not that one side is the angel and the other is the devil. It's a lot more gray than black and white. I'm taking Hamas out of that equation because we're talking about the people. I'm also taking Bibi out of that equation because I don't think he's an angel either. Until you really sit with the pain of the other side, not in a defensive way, not in like, but my pain, but like just sit with the pain of what it is to be in that situation, I think it's hard to move forward. And I'm not sure that the fundamentalists on either side, either from the squad or from the right wing fringe, have done that. I would encourage all of us to do that. That certainly can take us into a whole nother discussion because when I look at people in my government, Congress and the Senate, these are not people that I consider to be emotionally evolved. When I ran for office last year, having been a coach, 
which is there's this strong spiritual side that tries to keep you elevated or striving for elevation and seeking to rise above the pettiness that we're often guilty of as humans and really not react and respond. Being a coach and being in the coaching space, I think better prepared me for something which is so dirty and ugly and petty as politics. I would never call anybody a bad name. If I disagreed with their political view, I would never say that they're wrong because I believe that everybody's entitled to an opinion. While your opinion may be different than mine, I would never say it's wrong. When people call people names on television, I'm like, good Lord, these are our members of Congress and they're calling them idiot and stupid and da da da. They're also petty. Being a more evolved human being would give you that compassion to try to uncover the pain. Because to your point, it does all come from pain. It comes from pain and it comes from fear. Until we as individuals strive to do better and really try to understand wholeheartedly a different perspective. You and I definitely differ on a number of things, but I find your perspective really interesting. It is a different perspective and it is educating me. I don't want everybody to have the same opinion as me. I believe in diversity of thought. I think we get a richer product at the end of the day when you have diversity. I do think that it takes pushing your ego aside, which also takes work. It takes recognizing that your ego is even at the party. Most people don't even really realize that. It takes a certain elevated state as a human being. Not that I'm trying to sound like I'm so elevated, but I'm, at least I'm aware because of the space that I am in as a business. And I don't really see that type of behavior from our politicians. My cousin, Norm Ornstein, is a scholar on the U.S. Congress, and he's written a lot about the dysfunction of today's Congress and the way that the discourse has gone from civil disagreement to name-calling and bashing each other. I wish that I could say that I think that like, my party has the moral high ground on any of it, but I don't. I have to say that when I did a little bit of a deeper dive into American history, it seems that our politicians never really had that moral high ground. It's actually in our DNA to do all of that. And there's evidence of history from even our founding fathers where they were slandering each other in newspapers and accusing them of all sorts of things that probably weren't even true. It's apparently I mean, part I think of the American DNA. <laughs> I think at a fundamental level, a lot of this goes back to empathy and really trying to sit with another person's story and acknowledge that your truth is not the only truth. As you said, it's good that other people have different views. When you really sit with those views and really sit with other people's pain and understand where they're coming from, whether you're talking about American politics or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or anything else, I feel like that is the first step forward. I 100% agree with you. I don't know that you can actually have empathy if you are operating in a place of fear. I think that a lot of people these days, for various different reasons, are afraid. When you're operating in that state, it immediately puts you in this fight-or-flight survival mode, which does not allow for empathy. 
the last thing I want to say on that is there's a book I read last year called The Choice by Dr. Uh, Edith Egger, I think is her last name. I haven't heard her speak, so I may be mispronouncing it. But she talks about the four key emotions that you can boil most things down to, which are fear, anger, sadness, and joy. I think you're right that when you're coming from a place of fear, you can't really process anything else. All you can process is your fear and that you have to move through that fear to be able to get to your own kind of sadness and also the ability to hear other people's sadness and to feel other people's sadness. She's a very wise woman and the book is well worth a read. I thought that was a really interesting point because I think you're spot on if you're coming at it from fear is a bad place because being on the defensive puts you on the defensive rather than being in like a neutral position. Not to take this off topic, but I will say that the fear that it has been perpetuated by our government, the governments of the world and our media regarding COVID, this also, I believe, is a strategy that is meant to control and divide us. I said this a number of times in studying the Holocaust, when you first learn about it, the response is, how could this have happened? When I look at what's going on with COVID, this is how the Holocaust happens. You create fear, you start to cripple the society with their fear, and then you vilify and you blame certain people for what is feeding into their fear. With COVID, they planted this fear. Oh my goodness, there's this terrible virus. You're going to die. People are afraid. Then there are, you're not wearing a mask or you're not getting vaccinated. Therefore, you're evil. And therefore, it's okay to be mad at you. People are getting even violent on this topic. And they did the same thing with President Trump. You support President Trump. He is racist, xenophobic, blah, 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 everything else. Therefore, we've dehumanized him. And then let's dehumanize everybody else that supports him. So therefore, if you injure or even kill a Trump supporter, you're almost doing God's work. I disagree with a lot of what you just said. It was Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol, not opposition to Trump. I think that he did immeasurable and potentially irreparable damage to the United States. I think that the way that he handled coronavirus probably cost hundreds of thousands of American lives. I think his actions were unconscionable. If there is such a place as hell, I think he's going straight there. I think you and I are on very different sides of that piece. I also think that paralleling coronavirus to the Holocaust is an empty comparison. I don't think that it's beneficial in any way to anyone. I think it's making mockery and politicizing a human tragedy, and I don't like it. That's fair. My thought process around it is really more of a behavioral analysis of how we get to the places we get to. I think that's a fascinating question. Absolutely. Yes. Let's take Trump out of this equation altogether, but let's just focus on Corona and just the behaviors that we're seeing of people and how people are going against each other because of a lot of fear. It's just seeking to understand how we get to the places we get to with a context also of world history, because I am a little bit of a world history buff and have 
always put myself in the shoes of if I were living during that time, and I know it's hypothetical and you can't really project this kind of thing, what would I do in this situation? Would I be one that stands up or would I be one that turns a blind eye as a coach and being aware of behavior and also taking account into my own behavior, like understanding what I do and what motivates me to do what I do. My hobby in my spare time is that I actually built the Facebook community that is an evidence-based parenting group in English for Israeli Anglos. We are a group that encourages evidence-based decision-making. We are pro-vaccination. And when I set up the group six years ago, I didn't even take high school biology, just to be clear. One of the rules that we put in place, that I put in place when I created the group was no sarcasm. Absolutely no sarcasm. And it's one of the best things that we did because it enables people to have real conversations and to say, these are my fears and this is what I'm concerned about. And we now have almost 3,000 members of the group. Our admins include immunologists, nurses, scientists, physician assistants, and they're able to answer questions in ways that are patient and informative. And we know because we've gotten notes from people who have made this decision to vaccinate their children based on the scientific information that they got in the group. Because fear is a dangerous thing and information that is given in a patient way is the only way that I found to conquer fear. It has to start from empathy of sitting with people's pain, understanding that it is scary to have a trained professional stick a needle into your child's leg and not to dismiss that fear, to say, I get it. I understand where that fear is coming from. I also know that the reality of these diseases is a horror and that the risk of anything happening from these vaccines is infinitesimal and that the risk of your child catching one of these diseases is not infinitesimal. Here's the science behind it. We're going to lay it out for you. What are your concerns? Is it about the pain for your child in that moment? Is it about getting too many vaccines? Here's how they work. Whatever the pain is to try and understand that and break it down so that we can help people understand and make the right choices for their family. And this is all vaccines, not specifically to coronavirus vaccine? or COVID. Correct. I okay. created the group six years ago. I never had any idea that it would be this relevant. At our peak, we had more than, I think, 300 posts in, in a month. Wow. Every single comment is moderated. We have an amazing admin team, so I'm really lucky. Wonderful. All right. Well, this was really interesting. Rachel, thank Absolutely. you so much for agreeing to do this. And, sure. My pleasure. Um, it's given me a lot to think about and a lot to process, but I thank you for taking the time and sharing your points of view. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure and uh, look forward to hearing the recording. Okay. Thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. Take care. Wagging their tails behind them. Little Bo Peep. 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 <laughs> Little Bopee She lost her sheep, y'all
Don't know where to find. Huh? Everyone, I'm Jacqueline Toberoff. And I'm Tamara Lashtak. And we are your hosts of the Bo Peep podcast. Where the men are women, the women are men, and the sheep are confused. So Jackie, let me start out by asking a question. I am seeing in horror the rise of anti-Semitism. And you're in New York, so I would love for you to shed some light on what you're actually seeing firsthand. And what I see is... Jews getting beat up in the street and pickup trucks filled with Arabs. I mean, the only thing missing is them shooting machine guns into the air. I mean, is this really what's going on in New York City? I mean, it looks like the Gaza Strip. Um, yeah, there definitely is an element here in Manhattan that looks unfamiliar, not peaceful, not safe, not at all civilized. Not at all like one would expect for the leading city in the leading state in the world. It looks really dangerous, to be honest. And I have definitely seen a rise in anti-Semitism, both reported in the paper, which scares me because I don't even trust the accuracy of the reporting in the paper. And I've also seen it with my own eyes. And do you feel as a Jew, are you afraid? Firstly, I'm afraid as a person. I'm afraid as a woman. I'm afraid as a New Yorker, as an American, as a Jew, as a Jewish mother. Yes, I cannot believe that here we are in 2021 on the heels of being fed this false narrative uh, since June 2020 that we're all a bunch of racists when we have been force fed the most racist ideology, this CRT, and on the heels of that BLM and DEI. And we have leaders here, local leaders, Cuomo, de Blasio, uh, Chuck Schumer, paging, paging these three, who have gone out and marched with BLM, this racist, anti-Semitic Marxist group. We have current mayoral and city council elections coming up November 2nd. And I have barely heard a peep I don't think one peep from any of the candidates on the left condemning this rise in anti-Semitism, which is now at 62 percent. Conversely, I've seen quite a few of them condemn Israel, side with Palestinians as they're launching raining rockets into Israel and certainly marching and siding with BLM. Why do you think that there is a rise in anti-Semitism? Where is this stemming from? 100% for me, it's obvious. The embracing of BLM leads to the automatic condemnation of white people, of Jewish people, of democracy. It's all based on Marxism, on undermining white people. And look, they hate democratic people. Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East. So it's a natural alignment for them. There are many members of BLM that are virulent anti-Semites, many people that support BLM that are virulent Jew haters. 
there was just a video that came out the other day that the head of BLM called for the end of Israel. They have been aligned with BDS. That was on their website. It has since been removed. In Europe, they're commingled with Muslim Brotherhood. Can you explain to our audience what BDS is? BDS seeks to basically not do business with Israel, with any Israeli product uh, with Israel. It's to hit at their tax revenue and their finances. Let's talk about some key dates, okay? We know that in 1948, Israel was acknowledged as a nation by the United Nations. And since then, it was attacked by various Arab countries in a number of wars. You know, in 1967, there was, you know, the the Six-Day War, which was, you know, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq attacked Israel. Now, Israel has never launched an attack on its neighbors. It has always just really sought to defend itself against attacks. And immediately after it was acknowledged as a nation, it was attacked by other countries in the Middle East. In 1972, it started to settle in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And I think that that's when a lot of the current problems really started. Palestinians felt displaced and that they had a claim to this land based on the Quran. Israel believes that they have a claim to this land based on the Bible. Therefore, the fighting continues. Jews were in that land before any other group. Uh, I think the bottom line here is... There are too many people who are sick and depraved that refuse to acknowledge the existence of Jews and want Jews wiped off the face of this earth. And all reason has left them. And you have sickos here in America, in New York, that are subscribing to the same nonsense, either because they hate Jews, because they hate democracy, because they don't know history. Maybe they're listening to Bella Hadid. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's fashionable to hate Jews because again, it's fashionable to be pro BLM. I don't know. But as you said, this fighting has been going on forever. And actually when we had President Trump in office and everyone was calling him a Nazi for four years, the Nazi moved the embassy to Jerusalem. And now that the so-called Nazi is gone, we have real Nazis that are in office. But because so disgustingly, the left has bastardized the word Nazi, it has such little meaning now. I mean, look at the people that are in the Democratic Party. We have Ilhan Omar, we have Rashida Tlaib, AOC, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, the Jihad Squad. Jihad Squad, Cory Bush, Ayanna Presley. You have Biden. I don't know what he was doing, smelling her, encouraging her with Rashida Tlaib recently when she was coming out and attacking Israel. You have a very large group within the DNC that loathes America, loathes white people, loathes democracy, and naturally loathes Israel because of those three underpinnings. And then you have people in the DNC that sit back. Oh, I forgot to mention Maxine Waters. Then you have other people who just sit back and remain silent as these people spew their nonsense. Where is Schumer right now? Where is Cuomo? Where is de Blasio? I mean, again, if you look at the activity that's taken place during this pandemic, 
when they sought to bust up churches and synagogues and enter Jewish people's homes, you really did not read about them going into mosques and dismantling any sort of activity. And many of us were wondering why, of course, knowing the reason, it seems so heavy handed, so obvious, so political. I am just shocked by what I'm seeing because, you know, I grew up not too long ago. You know, we studied world history. We studied the Holocaust and everybody continues to say never again. They look at the Holocaust as one of the greatest atrocities, even though there's been other Holocausts throughout history where millions of people have died. This is one that, you know, didn't happen in our lifetime, but it happened a very short while ago enough for us to study it, enough for us to say, oh my God, never again, never forget. I would counter what you're saying. I have two kids in school and I will tell you this, you know, you and I discuss this all the time where I think every problem goes back to school. Children are not getting the sort of education from 10 years ago to two decades ago to three decades ago, uh, let alone four, five, six decades ago. They are getting a CRT, watered-down, activist, Marxist, racist, politicized education now. I really, my kids have not learned about the Holocaust at school, and I'm not blaming my school. Perhaps they'll do it in the near future. But my kids have not learned about the Holocaust from school. They've learned about it from me because I'm their mom and I'm Jewish. I really don't know what children are learning in school vis-a-vis the Holocaust. And this is intentional. This is very intentional. We are going to repeat the same mistakes. If you look again at BLM, they were looking to tear down and quite successfully many statues of many of our founding fathers because they were white, were being judged for how they lived centuries ago or decades ago versus now. Look, you you and I have also discussed, you couldn't make a movie pre-2020 now. The point I was trying to make was that when I was growing up and when I, you know, throughout my life, it was acknowledged that anti-Semitism is wrong. Israel is our ally um, and the only democratic state in that region. And we acknowledge that we are a friend of Israel's anti-Semitism is wrong. And now all of a sudden I'm watching as members of Congress are siding with Palestine and Hamas. Let us not forget 9-11. There was a huge debate after 9-11 about letting Muslims build a mosque right next to 9-11. I mean, people were outraged. And I was like, look, it's Islam is a peaceful religion. These are fanatics. And therefore, I felt that there should be a mosque. There was such sort of Islamophobia Now look at how the tide has changed. I do not think there was at all such dramatic Islamophobia after 9-11. I really do not. They pale in comparison to the attacks that we're seeing against Jews, which are a much smaller demographic. There have always been hate crimes, and there will always, unfortunately, be hate crimes. There really was not some overwhelming surge against Muslims after 9-11 in New York. Was there an attack? Was there uh, 
Did we read about some attacks? Yes, but I don't think anything is overwhelming as what we're seeing now towards the Jews. No, and I don't think, I don't actually think it was violent attacks on Muslims. I think it was more of the fear of Muslims. It was, it was not people going into majority Muslim areas, which you are seeing now. Yeah. You are seeing marauding Palestinian Hamas supporters going into, attacking Jews going into temple or, you know, going into traditionally Jewish dense neighborhoods. I will say this right now as well, for all of the attacks on Jews, you have not seen, I looked it up, I couldn't find any. I'm interested if anyone has any contrary information. There has not been one hate crime attack any Palestinian or by a Jew that I have been able to find when I looked it up in this period here. I couldn't find any. You're really seeing a rise of anti-Semitism by people that have not learned history because of the schools that have adopted a racist, Marxist, anti-Semitic ideology, CRT, and then the spinoff, the DEI, the BLM. And you're seeing local leaders basically uh, wave their swastika flag. I don't know. I mean, you're yeah. seeing. And I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think you are so right. There's always been this level of anti-Semitism. It is clearly spiked, but I think that it has arisen through the same ideology that gave us BLM and Antifa and all these other Marxist organizations that are really trying to dismantle our institutions and bring down our government. There is no question that these are aligned and the surge that we're seeing is because of the success rate through things you're talking about, like critical race theory, that is now actually coming to light. I mean, how long have you and I been talking about critical race theory? I mean, this is now a top issue that not so much the left-wing media is reporting on, but certainly conservative media outlets are now bringing this to light. And there is a massive amount of grassroots movements that have morphed in order to help fight CRT. And we need to fight this. I mean, the most recent I've heard about is trying to eradicate this from the military. But you've also read that National Pulse article about Bishop Garrison, who works for the Department of De Defense, and he believes in critical race theory and wants to expel anybody from the military d that does not adopt critical race theory. And he wants to he wants to um, eradicate anyone who he's calling an insurgent. Now, insurgent is code for Trump supporter. Shouldn't there be some sort of investigation into our government? that's pushing this to see who has given money to BLM, who is aligned with BLM, who is working with any of these terrorist groups. I know that unfortunately BLM has not yet been deemed a terrorist group, but that is what I think anyone with brain activity above plant life would consider them. I, they, they go around, look, they've created $4 billion worth of damage. They terrorize diners, pedestrians. They vandalize, commit acts of arson, loot with abandon. There uh, is no question. Let's just call spade a spade. BLM is a terrorist organization. That's right. $4 billion worth of that's damage right. across this country. That is a terrorist organization. You're sitting there eating dinner and somebody comes to you and forces you to put your fists in the air. That is a terrorist organization. Right. Okay. So right. let's not call, let's call a spade a spade. I'm with you. So while we're on that note, let's just bring it to a local issue for one second here. As you know, the mayoral and city council elections are the first Tuesday, of November, November 2nd. 
one of the top contenders on the left is Eric Adams. Eric Adams should be disqualified. He has supported BLM. He has marched with BLM. He's bike rided with BLM. He, quote unquote, painted murals, which otherwise is known as vandalism, hate paint to everyone in the area with taxpayer money. How is this person honestly running? Are we really just determined as New Yorkers to be on the absolute wrong side of every single issue? We want de Blasio redux. We would actually elect someone like Eric Adams. It's really just outrageous. That should be a disqualifier. Any politician that is aligned with a terrorist, racist, Marxist, anti-Semitic group, out. Do your kids say the Pledge of Allegiance in school? No. And by the way, when I was growing up in school, I'm 42, I didn't say it either. We no. did? No. I think that's been done for quite some time. Really? We did. We, no. did. we did in my generation. We did. Um, I think it's appalling. And I think that this is the difference between, it goes back to the debate on immigration. You know, when my grandparents came here, there was an assimilation strategy you had to swear your allegiance to this country. You had to study world history. You had to say the Pledge of Allegiance and really, you know, get on board with the American vision. And now they have removed all of that. We've recently started looking into the history of critical race theory. It comes from critical theory, which was started by a bunch of German refugees after World War II, you know, that came from, you know, Nazi Germany. And it has successfully you know, infiltrated many of our institutions, certainly our school. infiltrated the military. It's infiltrated military. education. It's infiltrated business, uh, federal agencies. I can't think of anything really that it hasn't infiltrated. Yeah. It is a cancer that is rotting our system and it needs to be eradicated because it's going to bring down America. I mean, well, let's just pause there for a second. If they're forcing CRT on the NYPD. In my opinion, what they're actually doing is they're making people that already hate police hateful, and then they're making law-abiding citizens very suspicious of current NYPD, and it's intentional. The reason why I say this is if you are hiring people going forward into the NYPD based on such pathetic credentials that have nothing to do with merit. How are these people going to be capable of safety, uh, providing safety? How are they going to be capable of actually making any arrests, not arresting people based on color? How are they going to do their job effectively? And so I think that this is a very real and intentional push to vilify the NYPD and these institutions meant to protect us even more. There's a number of people that dislike them based on this ridiculous media narrative, this false narrative. What's going to happen now is that law-abiding citizens are going to be really suspicious of the people meant to protect them, that they're supposed to go to for help, for trust. Hiring someone in such a serious position without meritocracy, but based on race, gender, religion, uh, I don't know, woke fringe ideology seems just 
so beyond the pale. My point is, I think that they really are trying to, it's just like with the stagnation. I think they're really trying to do such cyclical damage to these institutions in such a clever way by, again, having the people that hate them already hate them and then having the law-abiding citizens that traditionally trusted police and military and never questioned them despite one or two bad apples like you have in every single profession now be outright nervous to report a crime, outright nervous that they they can be looked after, outright nervous by the current crop or the incoming crop. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, what what is also very shocking is how much members of our Congress hate this country so much. I just don't understand this. Like we just talked about the jihad squad. What standards do you think that we should be setting for our people in Congress? And how do we even test that? How did Ilhan Omar get to where she is? I mean, seriously, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, financially supports her. I, I don't understand. How is this even possible? Uh, Rashida Talib, another hater. Look, maybe there should have been a recount there. Uh, her area, Omar, seems very Somali heavy. Maybe they voted heavy on similarities. I think there should be a question asked of all of these people. Maybe the entire DNC. Do you support, forget even asking if they support terrorists because they think Israel are the terrorists. They should be asked, do you support Muslim Brotherhood? Do you support BLM? Do you support Antifa? Do you support BDS? Maybe those questions should be asked. And if the answer is yes, I don't know how they can defend America or American interests. And they should be out. I, I just don't even understand how members of Congress could go against America's policies. We have set who our allies are. Everybody should be singing from the same song sheet. Okay, if you're a member of government, a member of Congress, you should be supporting our allies. I, I just really don't. Or at least care. supporting America and Americans. Yeah. At least. It's very sad and it's very scary. I mean, being American these days, you're not getting any of the perks, any of the benefits and any of the rights. I mean, immigrants that are coming here illegally are getting more rights and privileges than American citizens. It's really insane. There are so many problems. The defunding of the police, the support of BLM, the fear instilled into people's minds that don't support BLM, what's going on at school, what's going on in corporations. If you put on Disney to watch a movie with your kids, you're being fed some BS, revisionism, it's all over. And I think the intention is to drive people crazy, to rewrite history, and again, just dismantle anything created by white people, democracy, meritocracy, and anyone who supports those institutions. Anyone that supports the Judeo-Christian ethos has to go. And let me ask you this. Let's bring this back to the crisis in Israel and Palestine. So why do you think Palestine attacks Israel? Well, there's no country, Palestine. Why the Palestinians attack Israel? Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, they're funded by Iran. It's, it's, uh, 30, 30, $30 million a month. Right. $30 million and, a and month. And now what? Now our taxpayer money is being sent over to the Palestinians and sanctions have been lifted from Iran. The whole thing is just farcical. We are basically paying to have our ally bombed and again, just to destroy America and American interests. It, it really is so difficult to properly articulate because it's crazy. It is it's crazy. crazy. It, it's mental masturbation trying to figure out the reason. I mean, do the you reason. think the Palestinians would have invaded or not invaded, but would have attacked Israel if President Trump were still in office? No, the answer is no. We have a real problem in the White House. We have a real problem on the left. We have a bunch of Jew haters yeah. that are getting paid with American taxpayer money. Yeah. And we've got a real problem. We have a problem on the right, too. However, I think that the problem on the right is resolving itself by the right. I think that the uh, Republican Party is is really reshaping itself into an America first party and away from the establishment. Um, do you see that trend? I absolutely see that trend. And I always think about who am I more afraid of? And while there are definitely problems on the right, I am much more afraid of the left. They are destroying the economy. They are destroying our institutions. They are poisoning our minds. They are destroying our kids. Uh, it's not even close for me. Have you talked to many Jewish people in New York and gotten their take on the Palestinian-Israeli crisis? This is something that's that's quite mystifying to me. When BLM reared its head for whatever cycle they were in, I know they've been around for a while, but starting, let's say, June 2020, I was vigorously condemning them on any social media platforms that I visited, specifically on Instagram. And I could not get over how many Jewish IG influencers posted those BLM memes. I could not get over it. It was as if they didn't do any research, were such sheep uh, embracing a cause, an ideology that wants those people dead. And very recently, the same people put up that blue meme, that blue square on Instagram. And it was so divorced from reality and so strange. And what's happened very recently as well is in addition to bringing CRT to schools, there are principals now, schools now that are being instructed by DOE Mesha Ross Porter to take an anti-Israel, anti-state of Israel and pro-Palestinian stance. This has been told to educators, principals, and emailed to parents. This is a natural progression once you adopt CRT. And the Jewish people that are shocked by it, they're outraged by it. Where the hell were you in June 2020? Yeah, I yeah. mean, are you brain dead for supporting this ideology then? 
Would you like to come out now and print a retraction instead of a blue square? I'm waiting. I want to know how many fashion brands. I want to know if Chanel, owned by Jews, is going to continue to work with Bella Hadid and Gigi Hadid. I want to know how Vogue just had someone on the cover making anti-Semitic reports. I want to know how many people are going to continue to work with and support anti-Semites. And I think almost all of them. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I ask you that question is because I have been also very surprised. You know, friends of my, you know, ex-husband's mother who are Jews who live in Manhattan, number one, despise President Trump, which sort of surprises me because I would think that if you're, I mean, he has been the best president for Israel probably ever. That is a shock for one. For two, when they signed the Abraham Accords, there were a number of Jews who felt that the Palestinians should have been brought into the fold on the Abraham Accords. And again, it was a very strange posture for New York Jews to take. And I was just wondering if you were hearing something similar, because I felt like it was a posture that is divorced from reality. I don't know any Jewish people, period, that thought the Palestinians should be part of the Abraham Accord. I think many people I know think that how the Palestinians are acting right now is crazy, is terrible, is inhumane. The launching of the rockets, the hiding their weapons uh, where there are their own children, they're using their children as shields. This is crazy behavior. This is divorced from any sort of paternal, maternal instinct behavior. What I do hear are Jewish people that constantly conflate the issues, that look to kind of equivocate. Yeah, we get it. No one wants any child to die. You know, I don't want a Palestinian child to die. No one wants that. But they should then stop raining rockets on Israel. This is not rocket science. Stop hiding your weapons where there are your own children. So Israel, in an effort to defend itself, has no choice. Uh, stop doing that. You know, it's it's not rocket science. If someone is coming for me or my kids, they're done. We are going so far out of the realm of common sense to come up with some sort of reason or excuse there's right, there's wrong. Yeah, where's Joan Rivers when you need her? <laughs> Where is Joan Rivers? Well, we yeah. can ask we can ask Selena Gomez. <laughs> I I don't know anything she sings, but I I don't know. I don't even know if I'd be happy to speak to Selena. Selena. No, no, no. I was re I was referring to the video where they asked Joan right. Rivers, and then they right. came back into her and said, "Well, Selena Gomez says that she was like, oh, there's another college graduate. She was just busting on her." It's just amazing how we put so much faith in celebrities, like as if this celebrity said it, so it must be law. Like it's crazy. Right. It must be true. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point. I think that when celebrities don't have the facts at their hands, they play to emotion. And oh, they, and they never have the facts. Look, you have George Clooney, who wears this shirt, Free Yulia, referring to Yulia Temushenko on air, which, I mean, this woman is- Say it again. 
what, Yulia Tymoshenko, the woman who was running for office in Ukraine, and uh, she was arrested and, you know, put into prison because she had basically a lot of illegal activity with Gazprom and stuff like that. But regardless, not knowing anything about her, what is going on, what her posture is towards Ukraine and whether or not she'd even be a good candidate for Ukraine. He just wears this T-shirt. You've got um, Matthew McConaughey interviewing Dr. Fauci, another person who we've made into a hero, which we're going to very soon find out that this man is, is essentially a war criminal because he is the one who financed this virus. And we're going to find this out in short order. But another one, you know, all these people making him a hero. What I really don't understand, what I can't wrap my head around is how we even still have the DNC. There was all this talk about creating a new Republican Party or a spinoff. How is the DNC still in action? I mean, oh, they're not going anywhere. How do we have a party Seriously, I cannot wrap my head around this. How do we have a party that hates us and that hates America? Who is this party? And look, okay, might there be some that don't within the DNC? They're irrelevant. You know what? The loud voices are the ones that are in the driver's seat at the DNC. And those people are the Jew haters, the American haters, the America haters, the white haters, the meritocracy haters the capitalism haters. It's not the passive aggressive, you know, old fashioned liberal who, oh, you know, can see right. <laughs> it's not that. And honestly, you know what? Even, even subtly, like I said, my ex-husband's mother, she's always hated Americans. I mean, she, she, you know, she lives in America. She's lived here since, you know, they came here after the war. But she thinks American, I mean, she thinks of Americans as the deplorables. She is like, Americans are stupid. They're unsophisticated. Uh, particularly blue collar Americans. I mean, she really hates them. I mean, the minute the Iraq war broke out, she already got my my ex-husband, you know, who was my boyfriend at the time. She got his paperwork already and she was ready to ship him off to Canada so he didn't have to get go to war. And, you know, when I heard this, I was outraged. I mean, you know, my father, my father was drafted. He was in Vietnam, you know, relatives of mine. Really? Also. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. My father was in Vietnam. My uncle was in the Korean War and and stuff. So, you know, they have definitely done their duty as Americans and fought for this country. And, you know, for my mother-in-law's first reaction to be, I'm shipping my son off to Canada so he could be safe. I'm like, absolutely not. He's going to work. He gets drafted. So um, there's always been this sort of hatred. You know, my brother, too, total lefty. He also looks down on Americans. He's a complete wannabe elitist. He's not an elitist, but he's a wannabe elitist. And, you know, he hates I Americans, too. I, it's terrible. It's just a terrible feeling to think that our taxpayer money is going right now to people that want us dead. It's just a terrible feeling. I think about this all the time. We have people, look, we have AOC here from New York who hates us. She hates us. She hates us. We have Schumer who is still focused on Trump. I mean, this city is friggin' falling apart. We have Cuomo and de Blasio. I am so disgusted by our current local leaders. I'm so disgusted by the people that are running for mayor and city council on the left. Just 
Jesus Christ, come out and say something. You know, stop talking about reimagining. I'm done reimagining. Stop taking this passive aggressive stance. I don't want a de Blasio redux. I just wonder if things are bad enough that people will vote differently. And I wonder if people can make the connection. They can't. I recently talked to my doctor and she told me that, you know, she has been complaining because she owns real estate. You can't make any money in real estate in Manhattan because of all the oppressive laws. And, you know, she's complaining. It's like Cuba. And then she's talking to me about which Democratic candidate she's going to support in the next election. And I kind of went off on her and I was like, you know what? You get what you deserve. Okay, stop voting the same way and expecting a different outcome. I mean, these people are implementing socialism and communism. Same with Andrew Yang. I thought his interest, his idea of universal um, basic income. Not Andrew Yang. He came out for a second in support of the Jews. And then because of AOC or some element more powerful than him, he walked it back. Yeah. I mean, look, I would never vote for him based on that. But moreover, the fact that he had no backbone, that he just waffled. I mean, these now he's pathetic. He's pathetic. And the thing is, too, he had this concept when he was running for president, universal basic income, where you would get a thousand dollars a month. And I like that concept because it was like the richest country in the world. That would be kind of cool. Why shouldn't we all share in the wealth of the nation? Well, and it would be funded by tech companies. So I thought that that was interesting, not the federal government. And again, not that I was supportive of it, but I thought it was an interesting concept. He is now toting this as his primary mayoral platform for mayor in New York. And the thing is that there's not enough money to be giving out thousand dollar checks for universal basic income in New York. We're broke. So therefore, there's going to be some kind of shift where he's going to take this money from someplace else, not businesses in New York City. It's going to come from probably some government program. Again, more socialism. Now we're also seeing how detrimental it actually is to give people free money. I hear so many um, store owners, shop owners, mechanics telling me they cannot hire people. They can't get people to work. And even their employees, they're not allowed to fire them if they don't come to work. But they're like, we're collecting unemployment. We're going to dry out. You know, we're going to run out this unemployment and then we'll come back to work. I mean, we are really creating this unmotivated society, which it's just going to be so detrimental. And not to mention, it's going to impact GDP. The productivity level of our overall country is going to suffer because of this. I'm telling you, we're headed down a very dangerous path. Which also, you know, when you take out the police, who takes over? I mean, seriously, when you when you get rid of the police, who comes in? Yeah. Someone has to control. We had the mafia at one point in control. You get drug cartels in control. Look, BLM, maybe this is the move for BLM to take the reins. And then good luck, Jews. Good luck, white people. Good luck, Catholics. Good luck, men. Without law and order, you have nothing. Yeah. And right now we have high taxes. We have sparse things open. We have an education system that is broken and we have a political party fomenting hate. Yeah. And when everything is in that sort of alignment, you're creating more hate, more anxiety, more problems. And then, you know, you become anesthetized to it. 
it becomes normal. Oh, another, I, I couldn't believe it. I got some sort of alert on your old block. There was a shooting in Soho and it was so funny, not funny, but it was so strange how they wrote it. A bullet grazed someone. Like it's just a grazing of a bullet on Green Street, just a little grazing. And what the hell is someone doing shooting a gun on Green Street in Soho? That is crazy. Yeah. Anyway. All right, Jackie. Great discussion. Let's wrap it up there. You want to okay. tell our audience where they can find us? Yes. So the Bo Pete is on Instagram at the underscore Bo underscore Pete. And we drop every Thursday like it's hot. <laughs> There's a new episode and you can find us where? On every single on every single platform where you can get a podcast, Spotify, iTunes, all of them. You need to contact us on Instagram and let us know what you think we should discuss. We want to hear from you and what your thoughts are. So thanks, everyone. And we'll see you next Thursday. Wagging their tails behind them. Little Bo Peep. 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 She lost her sheep, y'all. Don't know where to find. Huh?